we're going to start doing these podcasts a little more regularly. Um, trying to do them, I think, Luke, what, weekly, biweekly, something like that. Okay. Yeah. And Luke's going to kind of help out uh, push these through. So we're going to try and get you guys some more of this content. We've been getting a lot of great feedback on doing this kind of thing. Um, so today I'm actually pretty excited because I think this will be probably one of the biggest ballers I've ever talked to. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. That's <laughs> a lot of questions. A lot of, I had a lot of questions. Is that right? 800, 600 million, 800 million. Um, it is confirmed. Yes. It's confirmed whether there's a sighting. Is that, I, as I told you over the weekend, um, <laughs> compared to others, I know I'm a small fish, uh, in the pond. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it depends on where you're swimming. Yeah. Well, so I just confirmed he is on track to do 800 million this year. Um, I probably can confidently say that you're probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest spender in ad leaks. Um, I know some people that do close to hundred million, 150, 200, but nothing near what you're doing. So very excited that you're taking the time out of your busy day to, um, get with us and kind of go through some of this. So I, I guess I'd just like to hear a little bit about you. Um, how long you've been doing media buying, how you got started and how you transitioned into doing, what you're doing today. Sure. <clears throat> um, whew, uh, I'm going to age myself saying this. Um, I've been doing media buying almost coming up on 20 years. Okay. Um, so uh, I, I did not start as a marketer. I think I always had a affinity. I grew up in Sri Lanka. Um, so a lot of people, that's where my accent is from. Uh, but I've been in the U.S. for about 20 years now. Um, I have always had a knack for marketing. I didn't understand it was marketing back in the days. Um, it was, you know, like every high school kid trying to hustle. Um, yeah, you know, so I started as uh, the wrong side of the business, pirating CDs. <laughs> so a lot of people who doesn't know what a CD is, uh, back in the days, you can't, there's no iTunes, no streaming um, so me and my buddy, that was our hustle. Um, but what that taught me without really realizing is understanding how to talk to people and understand what they need. So if you, anyone asks me why, or what I can say attest to my successes is that I am more conversational. I don't think that, you know, I know everything. I'm always trying to learn from others. And that's one of the reasons I'm even in at leaks is that I learn a lot just listening into what others are doing. And then I'll go into my little lab and test it. I'm probably the only, at least as far as I'm concerned, one of the very few C-level executives still by media. Uh, even when I was at Pidalgo uh, a few years ago, I'm still, I will be in board meetings and I'll be in front of my you know, computer opening up by media because that's a skill, uh, you yeah. know, the more you practice, the more you learn. So, yeah, um, how, so exactly. So how I got started into media buying is uh, by necessity. Uh, we brought our first startup to the US um, at a very bad timing when the very first dot, uh, dot com bubble burst. Um, we were literally lucky enough uh, that a week before everything went down, uh, this was back in 99, 2000. <laughs> um, we just signed a deal with a company called uh, Seattle Labs out of Seattle. We were based in San Jose, California. I'm right now in San Francisco. Um, and the deal they gave us was we were selling a SaaS product that's very similar to what Google Studio, Google 
platform today is email, Gmail, all that stuff. Uh, we were trying to do that for mobile phones uh, back in 99. We were a little too early for the market. People didn't really <laughs> understand why somebody would text, uh, write a message or go on, or try to use something on the phone instead of calling. Um, so we signed a deal, but that, you know, the bottom fell out. So uh, me and the two other founders were basically, we had money. Um, we could have either taken the money, went home, or we could have tried to figure something out with us. It's in our nature. It was our baby. We didn't want to lose it. So we literally went and just kind of ping people on the websites, email, uh, hey, how can I get our product in front of users? Because we were confident if someone actually used our product, they will buy. And that was uh, back in the days we were trying to sell it to ISPs, basically internet providers, the Comcast of the world uh, early years, right? Um, that is what introduced me to affiliate marketing. That mm -hmm. I understood I don't really have to go and throw internet, you know, banners online. Back then everything is based on banner buying. Um, I can actually give someone a percentage of my media uh, in return for all their hard work, right? So that was great. That allowed us to stay afloat despite all the uh, downturn in the market. We had, you know, And then I decided to go back to uh, college. Um, I graduated in Sri Lanka, but I didn't really have a US degree. And back then I thought that's needed. Um, within three months of, uh, and got into Stanford, and within three months of being at Stanford, I realized this is not for me. Uh, you know, but um, what we did was with my roommate and I, we started selling things on eBay. So we went from understanding affiliate marketing, how that's working, uh, and then kind of coming into eBay, which is direct to consumer. And this is interesting, 20 years later, things are coming back again where direct to consumer is the big thing, right? So um, that's how I got into marketing. How I got introduced to Facebook was... Um, maybe about 15 years ago, or even 10 years ago, uh, 10, 15 years ago, um, I was working with a, a client, a big brand. Um, they wanted to buy 10,000 likes a day. I didn't know how to do it, or I didn't understand how to scale it. Um, I found this ad on Craigslist, this small agency called Spruce Media. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard about them. Uh, they were like the early adopters of Facebook marketing. They had a nice uh, little platform and they were buying media for companies like Zynga and a few others. Uh, and I reached out to the, one of their account managers, I think that point. Um, he's, I think he's on Facebook now. Uh, reach out to him and said, hey man, this company wants to pay me a bunch of money. I need to buy likes. Um, you know, can you teach me um, how to buy media on Facebook? Uh, and I showed up next day uh, and they thought they were interviewing me to hire me uh, as a, uh, as a media buyer. Uh, but I showed up at 10 grand <laughs> only to spend 10 grand a day and they just freaked out. Uh, but the good, good um, experience there was it really taught me the fundamentals of media buying, right? You know, how to understand data, how to come up with creative ideas because the founder, I think right now he runs another creative agency uh, and I still work with them. Um, and they understood the user psychology really well and they focused everything on creative. So these guys were thinking about creative 
when creative is not even a concept back in the days. Mm -hmm. So that taught me a lot of things. Um, then, you know, as history would have it from there, um, they got acquired. And then I jumped onto another company called Nanigans. Most of these guys who have been in media buying know. Um, at Nanigans, I learned a lot about uh, actual really buying media from using the data, uh, how the feature-based model work, uh, how the automated bidding works, all that, all that good stuff. Um, and that's also where I really got to uh, hone in on my networking skills, as I would say it. So I spent a lot of the time with, it was a revolving door between Facebook and the Nanigans team where the engineers openly discuss ideas and how to improve because that time Facebook was trying to improve the algorithm. So that kind of gave me behind the scenes as to how the AI, you know, when they talk about AI, they're basically looking at data sets, how Facebook was leveraging their uh, social graph and data they had in order to inform decisions on how the entire algorithm works. So I don't know whether most of you, the marketers know this, uh, entire Facebook ecosystem is an auction-based model. So what I, what I mean by that is even an organic post you post is determined by the AI whether to show or not based on a scoring system and that feeds the CPM. So for instance, you might think, hey, I made a post today that really went viral or got a lot of traction and I made something else that did not get any traction in the back end. That's how Facebook is organizing on your feed if you're using a feed as a way. So um, that kind of allowed me to really understand what how this, you know, how the sausage is made, you know, put put, put it directly. Um, and from there, I went to work for another company called Machine Zone. So like one thing I will say is that I have been lucky <laughs> many other times. I got to work with companies that were really forefront of marketing per se, rather than a followers. They were the leaders. And mm -hmm. Machine Zone, which is a gaming company, that's where I learned the big game. That I went from thinking that you know, if I'm spending 150K a day is a big deal, to coming into a company that's looking at just like ours, they are like day traders. Uh, they know the CPMs of every platform, every publish at any given time. We had this massive dashboard. It literally looked like NASDAQ when you, when you came into their office because they were at that time, if I remember correctly, spending about a billion, a billion and a half a year on one mobile game. So if you guys are familiar with Game of War, Mobile Strike, where Arnold Schwarzenegger commercial, all of that, that's a company. Um, and that allowed me to understand the ad ecosystem better. So at Nanigans, I learned how Facebook was working and how the intricacies of Facebook. But a lot of the business side in terms of scale, I learned at um, uh, Machine Zone. Um, and that was a good experience. I was there for a few years. Um, then, you know, like... Every entrepreneur, I, dis I thought, you know, maybe I will take a jab at being, you know, do something on my own. Well, that didn't work out. <laughs> I think the first year I lost like a million dollars trying yeah. to promote a, a baby product that just did not sell. Uh, so, but I still learned a lot from that. And that yeah. time I had an opportunity to bring another Israeli 
media company they needed to establish in the US. They were looking for a CMO. So I thought I can help them. So I was with them for a, for a few, uh, few months. I think I did about nine months with them. Um, and then I decided to take a break from media buying because as anyone know, it's a quite a stressful job. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're spending 5K a day or whether you're spending a million dollars a day. The stress is the same thing. You know, things break, clients break. Uh, without going into details, you know, Justin and I had a little bit of things last week, you know, so it's, it's, it's a reality. And, and also, I wanted to cut down on my travel. I was traveling a lot between Europe, Israel, and US. And mm-hmm. my wife just had a baby. And as you guys probably right. know, parents know, it uh, doesn't matter. You can be the big shot everywhere else, but at I'm home, four. yeah. <laughs> So at home, uh, you need to you need to show up. So yeah. uh, I t- decided to take a break. And that time, uh, this was about three years ago, I would say. That's the time that um, I just started consulting. It did not start as consulting, but I got involved with investors. I had a little bit of money that I made over the years. Um, and I was kind of pressure testing. I knew there was something to do with direct-to-consumer marketing. Um, that time, D2C, the only few companies that I was familiar with, like Dollar Shirt Club and a few others who, who were kind of doing this. So um, me and my partner, we were like trying to figure out whether we want to do D2C or we want to just you know become an agency. But I knew in my heart, I didn't want to launch another agency like Agency business, as we know, is very commoditized and we didn't want to do it. So um, while we were doing that, we always get approached, you know, in the circle, people know me. So they're like, hey, I invested a bunch of money in this company. They need help with the infrastructure, setup, launch, funnel building, all that. So that was my first thing, like about three years of like consulting. So I went from working for companies, buying media, trying to buy media my own, did not really work out. I didn't figure out the recipe properly. Then I started consulting. That allowed me to get a full 360 view of the ecosystem. And I was able to cherry pick where I really wanted to bet. And this is something really important for anyone who is in the media business as a brand to understand that you know, as cliche as it sounds, stay in your lane. Like there are things that you're really good at. Don't go chasing after shiny things. When you go to that, you're likely to lose money because you only see the final finished product outside. You don't never see what goes behind the scene. The only way you will learn what goes behind the scene is by working for that company and in being in the war room, making things work, right? So where where did you end up now then so yeah so very quickly experience yeah so what we did was we started as consulting and i quickly realized that i'm basically giving the blueprint for companies to become a million dollar company or billion dollar company uh before that i have already taken helped few companies uh, go public or at least at run things at scale so we wanted to figure out how can we impactful and what we wanted to do. And we want to do something that, that was fun. So we spun a company called Tribe Global. Um, initially, I put my, my own money in 
And what we did was any company that I was advising or, or, or thought that had a potential or some of my close network friends have invested, um, I, we became like a SWAT team. So we bring in the service. We basically analyze all their data. We actually put together the, 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 the plumbing per se to launch uh, whatever the brand they wanted to launch. Um, and then we quickly realized there was something that's meaningful. Um, and what I think the first year we probably did about 15 million in revenue because that time we were working with, if you guys remember, all the scooter companies were really scaling. So that was kind of the companies either it's going to be, it was not 100% direct to consumer, but it was B2C. Um, and in the B2C, we wanted to work with companies that has a potential to scale. When I say potential to scale, they have already figured out product market fit. They just needed, you know, someone to come in and put put the work in to scale, right? You know, plumbing work, measurement, all that. Um, I put some slide together and I'll start sharing uh, very quickly. Um, that's how that's how you know the whole operation started. And then as I was scaling, you know, I'm like, okay. It's one thing to consult. It's one thing to sit in a room and advise. And I'll drop in, you know, once a week. Uh, and half the things that we discuss is not even executed. So we realize it's one thing to have, you know, like meetings like this and speak to people and tell them. It's another thing to actually show them how things work. So we came up with this uh, accelerator model. Uh, right now, in fact, Facebook actually made this into a course for their early adopters. Um, it's basically a 12 to uh, 18 weeks of real work. That means understanding the customer avatar, the measurement piece, what metrics that matters for you as a business, and then figuring out within Facebook, what are the things that we need to do right in order to scale. And when I say scale, I'm talking about at least a million dollars in media spend, um, you know, uh, a month, right? Um, and I figured, I think someone had this question, how do you scale from, you know, what do you do when you're doing 6 million versus 60 million or 100 million? Um, the, if one single answer is, the company that helps you or who is buying media and helping you get to a million dollars, it's not going to be the same team or same discipline, the team that's going to take you from, you know, a million to 60, 60 million or hundred million. And why that is, is when you go from scaling to a million dollars, you're actually getting out of the Facebook ecosystem itself. You had to make sure that your logistics are working. You had to make sure you have a, steady stream of creative teams and branding teams that kind of working, you know, 24 seven thinking about assets and all that things. So just sit, sit there and thinking, hey, you can actually, you know, use some method and scale to hundred million. It's not true. Um, I think the methods are and methodologies are great. It tells you something that you don't have to learn. It gives you an opportunity to jumpstart, but you have to come up with your own recipe. So the way I put together this 12-week plan for all these teams were, in my opinion, they will work because we had this wealth of information and understanding of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But when I gave that to these direct companies, they literally wrecked it. 
you know, I'll hear like texts from the founders usually, hey man, my team blew through 300K and I don't know what we are there doing. Okay, great. So let's come back, right? Um, so that forced, no, I wouldn't say forced it. We decided at that point, we wanted to create a core team and I literally went and hired everyone that I know was a star in the last 20 years. So that was another question somebody asked, how do you build a team that can manage 600 million, almost close to a billion dollars is that literally any head of marketing that I knew has run media in the last 20 years that were willing to not work for a company, want to do something on his own. And my pitch was, hey man, I got 20 million. I'm willing to give you 20 million. Do you want to play? Right. And usually those guys, anyone who's really like a hardcore buyer loves that, love the action and they want to buy. And that's how we put together the team. So our team is very agile. Each of them specialize in a certain discipline of marketing. Some of them are very good at customer market like strategy. Some of them are very good executors when it comes to different channels. Um, some of them are great, you know, I would call it conversational or creatives. They come up with these very innovative ideas. Um, and then we have people who have run, you know, they have worked for larger companies, larger brands uh, that are similar to the verticals that we are operating in. So they have a deep understanding of the full funnel, how it works. Um, so that's my team. It's very dynamic. And then when we work with uh, companies, we are still, I consider ourselves like a consulting team. Right. We have, you know, um, and it's very specialized. But when we work over time, what we're actually doing is we are training their internal people. We are helping them hire their first head of marketing. We are trying to um, help them hire the first creative director, all of that. And we are putting those disciplines in place. And typically um, our engagements last anywhere from, you know, nine to 12, 18 months maximum, we don't stay on an account. So that's another thing uh, because we have a finite amount of resources. We only work with about eight to 10 maximum uh, companies per year. Uh, most of them don't even qualify to get accepted. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, I think this is like any media buyer knows uh, if you're operating in an agency business or consulting, you know, they come in within a week, they want results. If not, they bounce. What you as a marketer need to really understand is that the amount of work you put in and learnings you get, you don't really get to scale. Um, I think Tim recently touched on that, right? Like first, six, first three, four months, any brand, you should tell them, hey, you're going to lose money. At minimum, you will break even. If right. someone comes to you and say, hey, I want a 1.5, 1.10 ROAS, tell them, hey, here's what we plan on executing. You can kind of give them a taste of what they can anticipate in coming months. You do want to be transparent about that. But also the reality is that if they haven't figured out product market fit, or if they haven't figured out how to communicate, the creative strategy angles, all of that, that takes time. And when one, not only that, and on top of that, you're also working with logistic issues and now with COVID, all the other supply chain issues, right? So my, my biggest thing in the, 12, I don't know, 13 years I've been doing this is where I've seen most people getting in trouble, especially in the agency businesses. They make promises. They, mm -hmm. they cash checks that their ass can't cash. So I get asked the question all the time. Well, you know, what, what's going to be my ROAS if I spend this and that? And my answer, <laughs> I'm not going to give you an answer because 
it's going to ruin the relationship. You're going to come back to me after three months and you're going to, you're going to remember when I told you I can hit two X at 20 K spend or two X at a million spend. And you're going to hold that to me. And then it's just going to ruin the relationship going forward. So I, I personally, and I always advise everyone I talk to, to never set expectations because it depends. Like you said, it depends on their customer service. It depends on their product. Depends on if they're responding to comments on Facebook. Like we have some brands that don't even manage their social media and they get, you know, people that will go on there and just rip the product. And it's like, you gotta, you gotta, <coughs> all that stuff affects what, what you do as a media buyer and running media for these companies. So I, I a hundred percent agree. I think the, the, the fundamental thing, you know, media buyers too, and I understand everyone has to, you know, put food on their table and they get, you know, you don't have that same level of deal flow. Like most, most of the established guys have, I understand that. But if you're a buyer, and if you're like, especially if you're starting an agency, you are, it, I, I know it will sound very controversial. I will advise anyone starting an agency. You don't want to start an agency because agency as a business, what you will realize is that after some time that you're not really adding value. And what I mean by that is you're more of an operator and you're trading your time for money and that will never allow you to break break free from what you need to do, right? So why I say that is you're essentially building the business for someone else. You're helping them get to a point and then you had to rinse and repeat the same thing over and over again and you're never really going to have traction. That's what I mean. There are big agencies in, in, in the enterprise world and they work. But if you really look at the operating margin, it's very less. And they're turned, you know, it's like a revolving door, right? People hop from agency to agency. There are few stars. Um, and I'm saying that because as someone, because I have been on both end of the aisle, I have been an operator. I have been work for brands and I have been my, you know, I have owned my own agency. Um, you know, even people ask me, so what are you doing now? That's kind of an agency. Well, it's consulting, the, but the way our deal structures are not set up like an agency. So we are not operating on percentage of media spend. We are not operating based on, you know, what we basically come in is indirectly. It's like you're hiring uh, an expert setup team and there's a price tag for that. And our contracts, and this is something I can openly talk about, um, we don't even take anyone under three, you know, under six months. We used to do some three months. And every time I had done that, I'm like, I don't want to touch this. Our now, the earliest thing is you had to make a 12-month commitment even to, for us to just say, hey, whether we will consider you or not. Can you talk about your minimums? Your uh, minimums. Um, so it's yeah. interesting. Um, we have a, 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 a philosophy. We want to work with people we like on projects we love. <laughs> That's like our, our, our tag. Um, what I mean by that is if you have a business, it's not predicated on the dollar. Like, you know, if you're doing something that's a product that's socially conscious, a product that you think will have an impact in the, in the, in the space we are operating in, <clears throat> that's something interesting to me. Um, and then I might get involved. Sometimes I might even, uh, you know, invest in the company, but, um, if, I, if you're talking purely like a transactional relationship, then uh, we expect them to at least spending, you know, north of 5 million a month um, so that we know uh, that 
they just want to go from spending, you know, five million a month is like 60 million a year. They want to go from there to like, you know, you know, 100, 200, 300 million, and they basically need help putting together infrastructure and, and teams. Uh, so it's a different type of engagement than like media buying, but like our media buying is anywhere float from like a million a month to 5 million. Because anyone who's spending a million a month usually have a pretty good understanding of what's not working. So then I can actually say, okay, can I, can I help fix that? Uh, 90% of the time, it's not what's happening inside the account. It's happening what's happening outside of the account. Uh, sometimes they haven't really nailed the offer. They may have made 20, 30 million last year, but they still haven't really nailed the offer or they maybe just one trick pony. They had one hero product that really scaled, they get, everyone get excited. They come up with five, 10 different SKUs and now they are trying to promote it and they expect the same results. And I would say 90% of the time, it doesn't really work if you don't have the fundamentals right. Now right. you have a higher chance of success rate because you have all this data. Um, I think maybe this is a good way for us to kind of segue into how I think about marketing in general. Um, let me see if I can do a... I'd like to try and save, I don't know how long this part will take you, but 15, 20 minutes just to rapid fire some questions at you. Yeah, so let's do this. Um, so um, I look at the Holy Trinity of marketing. For me, it's these three things. Um, as you guys can see, I don't even talk about tactics or anything here. You need to really understand your data. That means who are you targeting? Who's your customer, right? End of the day, who's your customer? Where are they hanging out? And how do you, or what do they care about? Uh, that's what the data tells me. So whenever we, we are looking at a client, that's the first thing I look at is to understand, have they even understand their core audience or customer, customer avatar, and how many of them have they found? And where did they find them? And are they finding them in a very cost-effective way that they can actually pay for the media? Because if you really think about it, at scale of things, every dollar you make, you're spending about 60 to 70 cents of that giving to Facebook or Google. That's, like, that's the truth, um, especially at scale. So you have 30 cents on every dollar left to figure out, you know, how to run operation, how to produce. So like, that's something that people don't understand. Everyone get hung up on this ROAS, but what they don't really understand is like when you're trying to scale, when you break that barrier, um, Justin, I think you remember like a few months ago, I came and asked you, hey man, what's the average CPM you're seeing mm -hmm. uh, when you're breaking over a million, right? Because even though Facebook says it doesn't have a tax, I believe after a certain scale, you had to pay to play. And what I mean by that, every platform, every channel, when you scale, it's not your ads performance. It has nothing to do with anything you're doing. It just, they, they have a premium. And what I mean by that is there are these big um, agencies or big brands have booked Facebook, you know, for a certain period of time, and that's their ceiling price. And if you want to play at that level, now you have to pay that and then some to compete, right? So that's what you will see when you go from a million to 2 million, you will see like within three days, you will see like a jump. Your CPM will go from like $50 to like 60, sometimes even $120 in the US. 
And that means whatever the category you're in, somebody else, another big dog is playing and he's like, this part of the ocean is mine and I get to fish and he owns it. There's nothing you can do to even break, break free from that, right? Yeah. So understanding that's important. The second part is once you know the user, where they hang out, now how do you effectively communicate to them? That's where the creative piece come in. I will say for most companies at the, you know, even if you're a media buyer, if you're really thinking about it operationally, creative is the best lever you have that can actually help you move the needle. What I mean by that is if you can figure out the viral factor, and I have some things I'll go through that later. If you can figure out what makes your creative tick, what makes your customers click on it, and they, you know, it's like giving them crack, right? They click, 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 buy. If you can win every click, you have a better chance. If you can just spend a dollar and make a dollar ten or dollar fifty in return, then you have that. Uh, so that's something that we we talk about on the creative with my team. Then of course measurement, right? Um, your ROAS is never your north star. You, there's a single metric that help you grow your business, and you have to understand what that metric is. Is it the number of subscribers? Is it um, is it the region marketing percentage of users that you are after or is the type of user? Whatever the metric, you had to really understand that North Star, then figure out how you can execute at all levels to get closer to that North Star and that's going to help you grow your business, right? So those are the three things I consider as Trinity of Marketing. But again, different people will have different point of view and I'm fine with that, but this is what works for me couple of questions um, on this slide yeah. for you for data for aggregation and what do you guys use at the scale are you using ga or you, what does your data we have our own we have our own uh thing that we built on davinci davinci is like a platform that airbnb built i'm gonna say about five six years ago um and it's open source you can take it and build your own data pipeline so we have our own uh, internal system. I mean, we are always working with most of our like clients typically have uh, like a third party, you know, measurement partner or something like Segment, uh, Palantir, a few others are like things that I think has some really good pipe piping to make it work. Um, anyone in between, I, I, I will test them, but usually it's a lot of stuff lot of smoke and mirror they don't really have the underlying sure. technology to to scale um yeah so i don't i don't i don't consider like platform it's think about platforms in this way whatever that's in the database it's telling you informing you in a certain way you can understand the data better right that's how i think about it but something that we are doing differently uh most marketers or agencies don't do except one or two that i know firsthand is we look at data not only as acquiring, but when we acquire a user, we enrich that user. What I mean by that is if I found an email, all I care about is if I found an email, a phone number, an IP address, every time I see that email or phone number, I am putting additional information on top. So our data layer is a lot more rich than most agencies. So why, why is that important? I can upload uh, a set of, if, if let's say I'm working with an alcohol brand, 
and targeted towards millennial with certain characteristic data. Da, da. Um, I can actually plug that data into, I will take their C first part data, their CRM data, plug into our system. And immediately we can create subset of users based on the characteristic that matters to whatever the promotion we are doing. Then of course, it's rinse and repeat, right? You upload that into pipe that into Facebook, build your lookalike, boom, you're ready to go. So we, I think that gives us a, an advantage as opposed to going with, you know, waiting for the pixel to populate or waiting for like interest targeting to work. Because think about it, right? Every time you're using something that exists in the ecosystem, you're competing with someone else. So interest group, I think with post iOS, interest targeting is gonna become expensive again. Guess what? Because a lot of their pix people's pixel data is not gonna be effective and everyone is going to go old school. Now they're gonna all create this like super targeted list and da 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 da. And what they are really missing is that you and 12 million other guys are doing going after the same thing, right? <laughs> I swear to you, here. I have like a, a, a old email list, like uh, I upload every time. And I bet you everyone who has worked for me have that email list, even though they claim otherwise. Uh, and I'm like, fine. Uh, but that's the nature of it. So that's something that we are doing different. And especially with the GDPR and since GDPR came and with all the CCPA and all that, we also work with, uh, DSPs or data service providers uh, or deep, uh, DMPs, data management providers to enrich our data. So um, I don't know if Facebook is still doing it. Facebook used to have agreements with Axiom and oh, a wow. few others uh, where you can actually uh, sign a deal where they will, they will actually give you custom segment of users that you can go after. I know it exists for um, real money gambling and casinos because that's controlled me media. So for instance, um, when we work with DraftKings, it's real money. So there are regulations around the different states and whatnot. And Facebook will actually upload a list that we can target uh, because those are users who have said they are fine with getting these type of data. Now, of course, that has changed post you know, Cambridge Analytica. <clears throat> so... Talking about data, that's how I see data, uh, if that helps you. Mm -hmm. um, so one thing I wanted to kind of add here is that these are some, some of the companies I had the privilege of working in their early days. Um, I'm sure most of you are familiar with, including TikTok. Um, what I would say is that if you are a marketer really trying to understand a business, find someone who has already done this at scale and try to reverse engineer, try to understand how they are communicating their value proposition. Where are they buying media and, and how are they telling the story? And then try to understand, and that will give you a better shot as cracking the code than, you know, you just looking at, you know, some presentation I'm doing or someone else is doing and saying, okay, I'm going to come and deploy, deploy that method. I, I would say, look at, let's say, you know, if you are, you know, if you are a small restaurant or delivery company, look at the delivery company that's actually in the market at executing at a high level, because they have already gone through the learning process to crack what's working. And then you can actually model after them and, and then execute on, right? So that's one. 
uh, whether it's creative or data, that's something that I do. Even now, like I am on Facebook ad library. In fact, we have, I'll think about it. Maybe Justin, you and I can talk about it, whether we want to make it available. Uh, we actually have a Facebook uh, list of like advertisers on Facebook. We, we have curated over time. Every time they come up with a new ad, it's come into a system because my creative team need to really be stay on top of what's working. And that's the way for them to understand, okay, here's a company that's not only our competitor, but actually telling the story a lot more effective. Mm -hmm. And if they understand that, they can come up with a lot more, 10 different ideas to tell the same story in a different angle that meets right. our goal, right? So that's something we can think about creating a short list. One question um, I know we talked about this last week is I know there's probably a couple of people in here that are, are seeing this wish. Um, we see the posts and ad buyers all the time of the pictures of the ads they run. Can you talk to a little bit about, and I know you know what I'm talking about, um, but I'll keep it PG. Can you talk a little bit about how they get away with that? So there is, um, if, you are a, if you are a large media spender, right, um, you can actually, they, you can get whitelisted. I mean, that's a reality. Uh, even now, before I came, I don't want to name companies, but uh, they, they are in a very competitive uh, market and the ads were getting flagged. And basically the conversation is, how do we get whitelisted? So what, what does whitelisting means is the AI looks for some generic trigger terms that will automatically ban, right? Let's talk about, if you're thinking about a weight loss product, if you say, you know, I mean, not the blatant claim, hey, I'm, you're going to lose you know, 10 pounds in seven days. I mean, that's bullshit. Like nobody can get whitelisted for that. But if you have a product that talks about personal attributes, or if you're talking about ads that are, you know, similar to the political campaign, you can um, actually upload all your, dis I would say, disapproved ads, ad IDs to Facebook, and they can actually whitelist you. So in the future, whenever you launch an ad, if that is the keyword there, it's already whitelisted, you will automatically get approved. So yeah. that's the name of the game. I'm not saying, you know, um, everyone, it, I mean, it's, it's end of the day, it's, that's, that's what it is. That's, yeah. you know, I mean, some of it is blatantly against terms of service, but I'm yeah. sure. So, any, so any, like, or... let's talk about things I would recommend not to do, right? Um, don't ever buy account from other agencies. Like think about Facebook as your bank account, right? And your social security number. You can, you are, you are better off getting a different bank account than you will ever get a Facebook account. They are going to be a lot more stricter, you know, strict when going forward. So I know like sometimes, you know, I even flag up sometimes people ping me and they're like, hey, you know, I got this account. Do you want to buy or sell? Don't try to circumvent the system reach out to Facebook, it takes time. But what you're actually doing is you're building that relationship. End of the day, they, you know, they are working for a company too. They have rules they had to follow internally. Otherwise they get fired, they will lose their job. So don't, you know, don't go slamming the guys. Don't like, you know, just send them a friendly note and say, hey man, maybe I screwed up something. How can we figure it out? 90% of the time, they will try to help you. And this has held true over the, it doesn't matter whether you're spending 10 million, 20 million, 100 million. Yeah. End of the day, these are softwares. Sometimes their systems are not perfect and they know that and it breaks all the time. 
And the best thing where you can actually help yourself is communicating, open the communication, maintain the line of communication with the teams and say, hey man, I got, my account got disapproved for this reason and can we figure it out? And even if they come and say, nope, da 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 da, keep at it. But instead of if you go and buy another account and if you try to do, what happens is that eventually that will catch up to you. And, and then you're like, now you're playing, you know, whack-a-mole with Facebook and you're never going to grow a business and that's going to give you more gray hair. And that's coming from a guy who used to buy 20,000 text, you know, phone IDs and pay prepaid cards and run Google ads. Uh, you know, that's, yeah. you know, that's not going to, that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. I mean, it, it still works, but it's short term, I would say. Yeah. Uh, so I'll quickly like, do you have another question around around policy? No. So okay. No, I just you know I know that's probably there's people thinking that with wish because I see it all the time. So yeah, so wish think about. Um, uh, I don't want to go into details, but the way is that they it's pay to play. Uh, they they are they are one of the innovators or early adapters on Facebook. So sometimes you do see like companies like um, Coinbase, which is in the crypto. Um, or uh, someone like DraftKings are able to advertise on Facebook, but no other money gambling can run on Facebook. That's because Facebook went and sought them out as a new, they call it disruptor categories. These are companies similar to Spotify and all that grew on Facebook. So Facebook actually see them as a new category they can establish and they will do a lot more of that. So I don't know if you guys were recently on the uh, Clubhouse chat where Zuck was openly talking about their partnership with Shopify because they understood, Facebook understand D2C is going to be the future of retail commerce. And they are partnering with uh, Spotify, sorry, Shopify. And I think they may have, a, I think they already testing a bunch of things, but Facebook will have a full-fledged e-commerce part of their platform integrated into you know, uh, if you guys think, think about like almost like early days of gaming, if you guys remember Zynga and all actually built on Facebook platform. Um, yep. And so they are, Facebook is trying to do that for uh, commerce as well. Any other question around that? Oh, let's jump into the next one. So this is, I think it's kind of generally for a lot of the, if you have worked with any agency, or any, any capacity, you probably know this method. It's nothing new. It's like the century old uh, approach. Um, but how uh, we think about it is that your creative storytelling, you have to really hit all these uh, three points or four points per se. Um, so as I said, you know, when you look at a customer, um, I don't look at them as a, as a conversion number. I actually look at this as a person who uh, was interested in something that I was saying, clicked on the, took the action, clicking on the action, uh, and, and then they would. So when I dissect that, I look at, if it's a video ad, I look at, you know, three second view for impression. So the percentile, so on average, let's say your three second views are around 20%, that's not good. That means 80% of the people who are interacting with the ad is not resonating. So the first thing, when you look at your, any creative, don't look at the entire creative and say this creative is not working or this creative is working. 
look at at least these three or four metrics, right? So the reason I put ROAS here is that 90% of the marketers I know, they look at ROAS, including my team sometimes. They look at conversion, ROAS, and they're like killing ads prematurely. Um, the way I look at it is that holistically, did I win or did I interest that, interest that customer that I was trying to tell the story? So if you pretend, if you think about Facebook as the wide blue ocean, right? In that ocean, your ad is your net, right? What are the fishing net or the line you're using? Your ad is going to what help you find the right type of customer. So if I'm fishing for a bluefin tuna, right? I'm not going to put a, a small you know, hook. That's not going to catch my big fish, right? I need to have the right hook. And I need to fish at the right area of the ocean, right? If I go to some corner of the ocean, I'm looking for a food, tuna is not going to come, right? So that's how you should think about it. Who do you want to find? Who's your ideal customer? Where are they hanging out? And what do you show them that will captivate that attention of their user? So that's the first part. The first part is the three-second view attention that tells you. If it's a static image, um, I call it thumb stop that essentially either save or share. It used to be clicks per impression or use CTR, but now I look at Facebook values, uh, shares per impression or saves per impression. So that, that kind of gives you the viral factor about when you're looking at. So that's the top first metric I look at. If that's above average, so you pull your entire account, you look at these three metrics, right? Attention, the interest, that's the average watch time or the outbound CTR and look at your baseline and then score each pieces of your ad based on that. So if, if your baseline is let's say 40, 38%, right? I'm just making this up. And you have one ad that you know scores above baseline on all three. That's your percentage is like 46%. Average watch time is let's say, you know, 15 seconds, and the outbound CTR is like, you know, 1.2 something, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and then that's you give that ad a you know uh, A grade right? Uh, or whatever you want to mechanism you want to use. Then if an ad is not working, then what I try to look at it is like, which one of these metric is not working. So if the, if 20% of the users are dropping off or three second view or less, like only 10%, then I will only try to fix that piece of piece of the, the video. So opening hook, maybe whatever I'm showing is not resonating with my audience and I'll try to change that. If that's working, but my outbound CTR is you know, below average, that's usually an end card. So if you, for those who don't know what an end card is, that's a call to action you have at the end of the video or, or whatever the call to action you have. So by testing different call to action and inviting the user to take action, usually help you improve. Um, the average watch time or the interest in the middle is, it's relative to what you are looking at. So if you have um, a one in a 60 second video and really understand what's going in the middle that keeping the user engaged. So after the third second view, if you look at the graph, you can, will see where people are dropping off, then break each of that frame. I believe, uh, I'm forgetting his name. I think Max did a, a detailed view of how he thinks about creative. It's the same principle. You break each of your ad 
into you know frames and look at where people are dropping off and interchange that frame by interchanging the frame and telling a holistic story that extends the view time i have never seen view time makes a massive difference it's actually qualified the user better so you get a good quality users but the attention and and the the outbound ctr typically are the two levers that we can pull um that will actually help your ad go viral um so that's something that i pay attention to so i gave you guys a, a, a quick example underneath um you know let's say if i'm running a fertility drug for like a females i'm basically like who am i targeting like that's like a women in their 30 where where is she hanging out she's probably looking at consuming the content in like instagram feed and then she is you know struggling with fertility so i'll try to tell the story in a way that speaks to just her and the same thing if i'm looking at uh, you know i'm targeting a man you know i look at okay he's probably in his 30s and this time he's consuming the video or whatever in like in a in a facebook article um and his typical problems are like around you know ingrown hair and razor burns or whatever like dating right so like i'll try to find that commonality and then create the content that speaks to them so that's the um creative model because someone had a question uh if i remember how do you what's my creative strategy this is my creative strategy every agency that we work with every um both internal external we work with different creative agencies um they get educated on this this is how they know that i'm qualifying whether they are creating us high caliber uh, high caliber content or not uh and as we decide to you know get into long long term contract with them this is basically we use as baseline to decide whether what is your them. what is your budget split for like when you're scaling up between awareness versus conversion uh on average the early stage if i don't have enough data and if you're going after the wide ocean and trying to understand where the fish is uh it's typically i would say 70 80 uh sorry 70 30 that means 70% of his prospecting uh and just kind of like net new users uh and then 30% is like you know warm audience retargeting and what not are you optimizing uh, always for conversion or how much of your media i actually i actually have a i will end of this call i'll drop in uh, i'm going to drop in but i call it daisy chain method it's basically a full funnel okay. um yeah so it depends so top of the funnel up until and this is also facebook has changed right yeah. um i would say up until maybe january of this year conversion optimization even at a you know 100 million users the pixel was ai was pretty good at finding in the last two months though some of my big clients i am actually optimizing to landing page view because i feel like if i can get the user uh, and this is again you it's unique for each account it's unique for your funnel you had to really have your funnel tight because we know any user who drops in or even accidentally clicks on an ad they are in our system and i know a lot about them and then i can put them in in the right uh, group and segment them where they need to be in in order for me to push so think about is that first stage if you guys remember like the my tickle my pixel method that's the idea the idea is that the users are all over 
And you can either take an approach to go after the users who are in market, who are ready to buy, or you're going to warm an user, educate them over time, and then convert them. Right. I early stages, when I'm looking at data, I'm going after the immediate users who are in market. But my long-term strategies always is, if I have a 110 million addressable market, how do I speak to each level of user and what matters to them and how do we convert them over time? Um, so that's how I think about. Um, yeah. So sometimes I might even just do 70% retire. So during holiday season, and I have a slide on that, why you don't want to acquire customers during holiday season. Um, during holiday season, we don't acquire customers. And this is like, everyone jumps on holiday season and, and get excited. I don't acquire customers or try not to acquire customers unless I really have to, uh, like leading up to like October, starting October, I'm, I'm all about retargeting. At this point, I have enough users that we have acquired in the leading up to that, that time. And now it's all cross promo. Uh, okay. And I'm not even going after the net new users at that point. Yep. We see pretty good lift by doing... Um any like new media that we're going to put in, we always launch traffic landing page views first, mm -hmm. always a few hours before our conversion campaigns. Cause like you said, getting that engagement in the auction, that's what determines your deliverability up front. And we've seen pretty good luck by doing that. Yeah. And I also think, and again, <clears throat> this is still experimental. So I want to, I want to give people and I, I don't want you guys losing money. Um, I think, Facebook's uh, pixel data, if you don't already have pixel that's really warm and Facebook has a ton of history, um, I think Facebook's pixel may be less effective than it used to be going forward because it has less features to optimize towards. And what I mean by feature is that if you take a user, like if you take me, Facebook knows my buying habit. Facebook knows how often I'm logging into my phone, what time of the day I'm logging in, all of that information. Going forward, let's say I switch my phone to a new device. My device ID has changed. So Facebook is actually losing that set of data that it knows about my behavior and it has a reset. And when it resets, it's rebuilding that. So if it already has history and if I kind of load my app, uh, Facebook app, mm -hmm. um, it has some history and it will build off of that. But that calibration time will impact whatever the historical data you have in your pixel, because now the device ID have changed or email have changed. Um, I don't know how, what percentage or how that will impact the overall buying strategy for us, but we are anticipating at least 20 to 30% of our users will be impacted because on average, we see about 20 to 30% of our users are early adapters. That means these are the guys who has with disposable income but they are also the guys who switch phones. Every time there's a new phone drop, they jump onto that one. So when they, whenever they update their phones, I'm not buying media because I want Facebook to wait and then come back and say, okay, Rishi switched his phone. Now Facebook has enriched his data. Now I have an email that I can connect to him to, and then I'll go from that. Right. right. Um, question on that. There's the billion dollar question. Can you season a pixel or do you season an ad account? Uh, <laughs> seasoning and ad account. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. What I mean by that is pixel, yes. It, pixel, think about it. It's like pixel is like a 
hooks that Facebook has all over the web and it's collecting data. Yeah. But the pixel doesn't store data long time. Your account actually has way more information. So, uh, and then that kind of goes into campaigns and ad sets and all the things. Right. Um, so account history matters. So sometimes we do test this where um, if I have an account that's calibrated to, you know, women in the U.S., 80% is women market, da, 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 da. Then the same brand came up with something they're targeting men. Uh, and my CPMs are like high and I can't even get traction. I may just test the same pixel, but in a different account targeting men and try to see if I get a lower CPM. Because what happens is that your account history influences your flow pricing in Facebook. Um, I have heard different argument uh, with that, but at least my experience has been that sometimes my accounts will like I'm spending, you know, a million dollars a day mm. and I can't even get traffic and I'll fire up another account, same pixel, boom. Yep. And so that's the reality. I stopped your screen share because you're probably wondering just so we could get some content. For oh, okay. No worries. No worries. You cut it up, but you can reshare. <laughs> if you're oh, wondering, okay. you stop share. Uh, so we are back on this one. Um, so this is kind of touching on when, so this is some strategy that I'm doing that's different than most marketers is I create my, any brand we are working with, we create our own product drops. And yep. what I mean by that is that we are creating our own Black Friday. That's a simple way I will tell you. So we prime our customers saying, hey, we are coming up with a new product. We are about to drop, build up the hype, get them on a waiting list. Um, and then we will release. And when we release the product, we are giving them you know, 20 or 30% off just to get them excited. And indirectly, what I'm also doing is that I'm priming my users to really pay attention to sales. Uh, this is like a very common uh, habit or, or thing that I have seen with, uh, with users. Mm. They'll give you the email and they care about deals. So, yep. so don't ever run, like I wouldn't say like don't ever run evergreen deals. You can run evergreen deals, but you don't want to become, you know, uh, Home Depot or, or one of these things, right? They're, they predict you. So they don't even buy. They will wait for the like a President's Day sale or some sale because they predict that you're when you're going to throw a sale. But if you do the opposite, where you never have a deal uh, and, and all of a sudden you throw a deal, people will jump on it. So this is a, so we kind of use a reverse psychology there. What we do is that throughout the year, we look at certain peaks. So we know that Mother's Day are coming and people are likely to spend a lot of money. And we also know that Mother's Day, a lot of the media will go up because every company is going to, pump money targeting Mother's Day. So what we will do is that we will start building, we already start building our email list for Mother's Day offer now. Um, I think we typically start Mother's Day the day after uh, February 14th, which is Valentine's Day. Um, so any fashion brand, anything we are working with or any DTC brand, we are building a list and, and we are looking for people who are likely to buy gifts and mm -hmm. they're on a thing on our mailing list. And then week prior to mother's day we will start do daily drops and it doesn't have any offer we will not do 20 percent off 30 percent off or any of that there's no incentive but it exclusivity i have found exclusivity goes a long way than deals yes people will still buy 
deals, but people who buy exclusive offers has a higher LTV and that's something that we noticed. So think about it this way. Someone who doesn't buy throughout the year, if they are buying on holiday, their motivation is different. They are typically buying because they want to give a gift. But if you run ad where they, they actually see the value in your product and that, time, that user is likely to stay and buy more from you over and over again. And this is why you see like big high-end brands never have a sale. You never see them. They may have a clearance section, but they will never, you know, you don't see Ferrari going on a sale. That's how I would describe it. Yeah. Why? Because the perceived value is high. So even if you're doing a drop shipping or whatever, right, you can actually build brand and the perceived value of your brand. And you will see that more people are willing to pay for it because in their head, your brand is worth 10x more than the same guy selling the same product. Um, this is why you see like, you know, certain established brands, people will pay more money, even the same quality of the product, D2C coming, you know, da, da, da. People who are saving money will buy, but not everyone is buying, right? Uh, the second part is, so what we look at is we, throughout the year, um, you can actually find this pretty much everywhere on the web. Different, these uh, clearing houses put these metrics from previous years. And as you guys can see, this was like the, retail of 2020, how it was projected. So we know start Thanksgiving that we were on average, we we're gonna see about 35% growth uh, in, in the year. So we started not compete uh, in that period and we started pre-gaming and literally bringing everyone into our funnel throughout the year. And then I believe around October, we stopped acquiring new customers. And then since October until end of January, we just focused on remarketing to our existing users. So this is another way you want to think about. This is also another interesting way to think about when you're trying to scale, you want to, you're buying data and you're not buying customer. And what I mean by that is each data points you're acquiring throughout the year is valuable data. Keep it stored, keep it stored away from Facebook uh, and, and then enrich that data. What I mean by is that uh, email, phone numbers, any permutation that you can understand about the customer, keep that in a database. And then every time you want to launch, that's what you use. So um, this will go back to your seasoning pixel. I don't season the pixel, I season the emails. So every time I think about it, I'm very quickly to acquire emails. And once I get the email, I can model a lot of things uh, and then, then go from there. I don't season pixels either. I just, I don't think they're in the group a lot. So. I think there's, there. I, I understand why that, because Facebook didn't do a good job explaining what the pixels uh, seasoning means. I think they just kind of took a um, shape of its own. Yeah. Um, what Facebook is saying is that, hey, you got a new ad and if it, you know, spent, tried to spend thousand dollars a day, it's not going to work because they don't have enough data on you, on your account. So that's what, you know, the, I think seasoning pixel came. Um, I call it warming up the account. What I will do is that when I, whenever I start a fresh account, I start running PPE campaigns or engagement campaign, purely content. Uh, we do a lot of micro content. Like we have 15 seconds, uh, five seconds video hooks, like uh, throughout the accounts and building the brand, um, especially on Instagram, like a lot of our budgets just to kind of give some people numbers. 5% of our budget typically goes into building in Instagram portfolio. Yep. 
And we think about all these assets we are building as portfolio for a brand. So on Facebook, TikTok, wherever, we are not buying followers, but we are putting enough content that speaks about our brand. So anytime someone sees, they will know. So this is the example if I'm using Airbnb or even Wish, right? When you see an ad, without even knowing what it is, you know it's a Wish ad. Why is that? Because (laughs) they have primed you for the last three years showing you the most outrageous thing and you know it's a wish ad. So we try to do the similar ones like Instagram or wherever and that's where the curated content is even more valuable is that you people understand who you are. Then all of, us, all of a sudden your brand itself become an influencer. So you're trend setting what people should be buying, right? How does your ad account, do you guys test multiple ad accounts at that level or do you keep everything in one? Um, I typically have, um, I would say, maybe three to four accounts, uh, ad accounts per client. We always have one hero account. The other ones are like either testing or backups. Um, some accounts we had to have multiple accounts, multiple pixels because the budgets, the clients PNL are different. So some of our clients I work with are global brands. So they, are, they have different uh, companies, region uh, managed by different regional managers. So we had to like for the accounting purposes. But typically about three to three accounts is what we go. How do you deal with cross account duplication? Um, so the way we think about it is that um, I think someone asked me this question yesterday. Um, we use the same pixel and each of the ad objective or can, the purpose of account is different. So uh, think about you have multiple race cars in a race your hero car is always going to be the one primed to go. Um, but the reality is sometimes accounts get shut down, some bullshit happens. But so I have the other race cars lined up, ready to go. That's one. The other one is we also split based on uh, uh, influencer marketing versus direct marketing internal teams. So we have accounts that's dedicated only for onboarding different influencers and testing because our budgets are a little different and the strategy is different. Um, so we will have uh, multiple accounts. One account is running all paid media. It has a backup account. If something to happen with that account or like AB testing, we will use another mm-hmm. account. Um, and uh, I understand that people worry about overlaps a lot and Facebook kind of flags everything as overlap. And even if you go compare like this audience versus this audience, if you look at the overlap, you will see like 90% or 30% overlap. That's that's a reality. I am I am marketer, like the more ads I want, I want to I, w- I want you to see my ad literally every time you open the phone. The only way that I'll stop serving you an ad is if you bought the product within the time period, I think. So um, why I say that is, you know, think about like TV commercial. Why do you think that people buy you know, Toyota or, or Honda or whatnot, because they have come over the years to understand that's a brand, even though they are not in market right now. And actually like, we'll segue into this. Um, also want to be respectful of your time. So let's yeah, do it. So that's what I'm minutes. quickly jumping. I think I'll use this as a way to educate uh, or talk about. Uh, you guys see uh, me doing this pyramid style uh, explanation a lot. And uh, this is what I use for pixel, tickle my pixel as well. So, most marketers make the mistake of focusing in this 1% of the users. 
So when you today go into Facebook and put conversion optimization for purchase, what you're telling Facebook is you only care about the user who is in market today, who is willing to buy, right? And that's why you see your frequency goes up. Facebook doesn't even go outside of your account, outside of this cohort of people that it thinks because you're telling the algorithm, the outcome you want is a purchase. And by doing that, you're actually doing a disservice. What you should be thinking about is that if you look at your entire market holistically, mm. there are people who may not be, they have different problems and there are different things that will trigger, trigger them to buy. So if you look at the top 1%, they are not sensitive to price. They are early adapters. They're willing to try everything new and they were willing to pay. So if you're selling 125 plus product, you will see that's what the percentage of the users that you can go after and it's very small. But that doesn't mean you can't find different ways to sell it to the same user. And I'll use this like, a, you know, right now everyone knows that Afterpay and all these things, why it's taking over is that there are people who can't afford to pay $125. But if you give them an offer, they can't refuse. That means you make a no-brainer offer, as I call it. Hey, $6, subscribe for it. You know, you pay over the next five, five weeks, 10 weeks, or even two months, and they will buy. So the way we segmented it is throughout the data, we noticed um, $125 products typically is only like a tip of the, uh, the market. The rest of the 2%, uh, they are buying now, they're in market, but they are little value conscious. So they are basically comparison shopping. They're looking around, they're looking at other brands. Uh, their trigger point is 65 to $70. Anything about, they will not buy. They will try to wait for a sale. Um, the rest of the 17% of the market is typically price conscious. <clears throat> they're still researching they are looking for third-party validation. So here's where you can show a lot of social proof, customer testimonial type, and their sweet spot is 45 to $50, right? Um, and the others are like hype. That means four more. They will buy, but they are looking for others to buy first. They're kind of the late majority, as I call it. Um, and for them, you can actually do like a hype videos. If you're like a beauty brand, you can do like a beauty route, you know, routine, uh, influencer kind of thing that will get them to buy. But 60% of the market, any brand is customer is not in market. Uh, they are not interested in buying, but they will like, you know, passive bias as I call them. And you need to have something that will make it impulse buy, right? So if you have a $50 product, but if you say, hey, try this for a dollar, boom, they will buy. We can no brainer, right? Yeah. So one thing that we have, we have found is at least for our D2C brands, that's how we think about how we want to scale to $100 million, right? If I go and focus and come and tell you, hey, I'm going to get you 1.7 ROAS, or spending a million dollars a month, this is where I will be. I will never scale. But if I want to do 60 million or 70 million, you know, um, ARR in media and want to drive 100 million in revenue, then this is how we, we segment the user base. And then we try to understand, are they price conscious? Are they, do they need to be educated more? Or are they waiting for third-party validation? And then we'll show those users the right amount 
So for those who are interested, like especially if you're starting with small budgets, uh, I think it's easy to get uh, approved by Afterpay. If not, Calgary is pretty good at up and coming. Uh, or if, uh, you can also use uh, ClearBank. So ClearBank, those who are not familiar, they will actually give you credit at a 6% finance for based on your current, uh, uh, you know, sale, right? Not sale, what do you call revenue. Your, your in revenue, right? So you can actually scale ahead of time and then you only, you're only giving up, you know, six points uh, on, so it's free money in, in, my, in my opinion. Yep. One thing that's, um, you were talking about Instagram, um, something that's working really good for, uh, for us right now, we started testing is, running actually conversion purchase to Instagram profile page. We're yes. seeing better ROAS with that than on straight conversion. Run, 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 try running like traffic ad to Instagram stories. Um, that for me is like, like when I have no data, like if I want like cheap inventory, but super targeted, but you need to really have like a really good uh, quality uh, creative. Um, but uh, you know, run Instagram stories, traffic ad like really works well mm -hmm. for even for us at scale. Like I can easily drop like you know 50k a day on Instagram story and profitably. Um, one quick thing, the takeaway I really want people to focus is that don't focus on ROAS. ROAS is a limiting factor, but focus on LTV. If you really understand the lifetime value of your customer, you can actually compete at a level that nobody else can. So for instance, um, I think Tim or someone may have touched on it early, early days that when we look at our user, we think how much that user is worth to a business over the next two months, next three months, next year, for the lifetime of that customer. And now I can afford to compete at a higher level and buy. And when you actually pay premium on Facebook specifically, you're actually getting the high quality of the user. For instance, Recently, I was auditing an account and the buyer was optimizing based on ROAS mm -hmm. and it's a subscription business. I was like, dude, when you look at D, D7 ROAS, what's D7 mean day seven, seven day ROAS, when you're looking at the ROAS, someone is buying a one-time purchase because for that particular client, if they subscribe, they get a 10% off. Yep. So, so when you look at a small window, you're like, oh, this guy, so you're going after users who are buying the product just for once. But if you focus on users based on how or type of users who are staying past D7, then that's a quality user because he's likely to stay around in the network much longer. So even though they may, they may drive lower ROAS month one or day seven or whatever their break-even period for you, long-term, they are a high-value user. I think a lot of the problem is cash flow for people switching from a ROAS to that's what that's what I that's what I tell them that you should look into something like ClearBank or even like Afterpay type because now you can break even and still afford to keep yep. spending media because that you know you're getting paid anyway you're just giving a couple of instead of giving Facebook the six or ten percent more on media you're giving that to a bank. So um, unless there are some questions I can go, this is something we are doing um, and I will, I'll post more details later on. Um, <clears throat> but uh, before that, any questions around this? Nope. 
So um, this is more people who really care about tactical uh, stuff than than. Uh, so we we started noticing that um, throughout last since last October leading up to January that. Um, I looked at all of our spend, you know, last year we did 600 million in media. So we looked at all of that and we realized no matter how often, and last year was a spectacular year because most people were home and they were buying stuff. That's what, like, if you look at May, June of last year, like everyone was minting money. Um, But what I noticed is that Facebook still, even if you put like a hundred million or 200 million, you're targeting like users, um, Facebook still only stayed behind a certain cohort of users. And this kind of, you know, re, you know, when it, it kind of re into my view of like Facebook, when you do conversion optimization, Facebook is only going to go after users, what it thinks are in market, right? So the way in order to reach a wider audience, but also profitably, the way it's working is, and I'm calling it the daisy chain, is that the idea is that it's a CBO campaign and your full funnel is in the same CBO. And what I mean by that is top of the funnel, retargeting and, and bottom of the funnel all in the same. And I'm using cost cap to distribute budget. So for instance, top of the funnel, I'm saying, telling Facebook, this is the maximum I'm willing to pay for this type of audience optimized for conversion. And then if they fall into the funnel, they get put into, so if they buy, they get, let's say it's an add to cart, then that's a positive signal. I will let them go through. But if they did not add to cart, but saw the video, maybe three second or 50 second or whatever that matters to you, mm-hmm. they get put onto a different ad set. And this ad set is optimized uh, for either landing page view or conversion in the same campaign. I know not all accounts will allow you to do different type of uh, optimization, but in CBO, in some accounts, Facebook still allows that. So if it doesn't allow you to do it in the same account, do it in a different CBO, but if it allows you to do, and how I qualify the users is I use a UTM parameter to only show ads to the users who have seen my ad. So you do like a UTM, get the campaign ad set ID and pass it ad set ID as a qualifier, qualifier, and then that user gets put into the second ad set. Then if they take the desired action, which is add to cart or subscribe or complete a survey, they get to move through the funnel. If they don't, then I know that I need to retarget the users with a different value proposition. So let's say if you're, a, you know, if you're selling shaving cream and the user saw the video, engage, but he um, added a card, but still don't buy. So typically if they added a card and did not buy that either the option I gave them was not interesting or the price point or some other blocker. So I'll try to give them, hit them with a sweeter deal. It's a quick 15 second video with a one-time offer. But because I'm uh, limiting the users by UTM parameter, I'm only serving that to the users who have seen the ad first. So think about it's like a sequential ad top of the funnel ad, branded, hyper-value, broad terms. As they go down the funnel, not only my messaging changes and the offer changes, but also the optimization feature changes. So for instance, either I will optimize to a landing page 
if I'm optimizing, if I have a ton of traffic coming in, then I'll optimize to like an add to cart or I'll optimize to initiate checkout or something like that. And if it's subscription, I'll an optimize to like a registration, start registration or something like that. And then try to get them in the funnel. This is working pretty well right now for us. Um, and I'm getting like almost, my CAC is like one third of what I would do on a regular scaling campaign. So, which means your ROAS eventually backs up. Yeah. Um, so the things to remember is CBO, cost cap, each cost, each ad set has a different cost cap to find what the sweet spot for you. And your intent, the objective you're optimizing towards can be conversion optimization, but towards the landing page view or conversion optimization towards, uh, you know, registration or something like that, a different event, but all remain in the same, same container. Um, and typically I don't go more than four or five ad set. Uh, three is my best. Uh, some of my larger campaigns that I'm spending like 100K a day only have two, uh, two ad sets. One is broad, doesn't target anything uh, or like 10, 20, 30 million users interest targeting or whatever stack I have. Then the second ad set is retargeting and the retargeting anyone who saw my ad in the first ad set and that just runs at funnel. And then if I want to run a different strategy, I'll launch the same thing, different CBO and I'll scale. Makes sense. Any other questions? Mm -mm. Sometimes mm -hmm. I, I do apologize. I tend to talk fast. So <laughs> Mimi had to. I mean, we could sit here and BS all day. I, I have tons of questions, but I know that you're a very busy man. So I want to be respectful of your time. So. No, feel free to feel free to ask me if anything that's, um, I want to make sure anyone who asked question that was, um, that was relevant to this. I'm happy to answer them. I can yeah, let me see if there's anything in the chat real quick. Hold on. It runs behind too, so yeah, that's part of the problem. Now it see now I just switched over to Daisy Chain, so they haven't even seen all this yet. So oh, yeah, because it. it's a couple minutes behind. Um, there was a question for um, how much do you bid for cost cap? One x, two x, ten x? Typically, like great question. Um, I think uh, <laughs> so. I was testing, so what's working now is um, if, I'm, if I'm confident in my funnel that I know I can afford to pay 5X, um, I, would, I would bid 5X uh, just to get traffic. Then I will lower, you know, 10%, 5% until it's Facebook stops serving traffic. So that's one, one tactic. Again, these are tactics, these are not strategy. Yep. Um, the other thing is, um, you know, incremental. So I will have three ad sets, one ad set I am bidding on AOV. So if your average order value is $75, I'm bidding $75. Then I will have 2X and 5X and then see which one Facebook is favoring. And then I will try to work with that. Yep. Um, when I'm doing cost cap, I'm not turning off ads. So that's a common mistake. If you are a marketer, Facebook is need at least, even at our level of spend, 72 hours to optimize for an ad. So you may bid at a cost cap $75, but day one, your ad is, one ad 
ate all your budget and spend $200 with one conversion, do not kill that ad. What that ad is doing is it's informing Facebook what other ads to test, and then it can come back. Eventually, it will come to the the uh, cost cap amount that you have put. But I am I'm noticing on average it's taking about three to four days before it settles. Okay. But do not kill any ad once you launch an ad into an ad set with a cost cap. Feel free to put extra ads into that. But anytime you introduce a new ad understand it's going to learn, reinform and learn. Um, so I have seen different people do different things. Um, I have a tendency to start high and then over time I will lower, tighten my cost cap and get to the point of profitability. Yep. Uh, there are others who start small and they will increase. I advise against that because now what you're doing is that um, you're almost operating like a bid cap, yep. right? So. Uh, if you if you still don't know what your sweet spot is, test it on BitCap. Then once you know your base basis numbers, come to cost cap. Uh, if you don't know any of that, just start with auto bid, small budgets. You know the classic way of testing. Uh, but uh, cost cap is pretty stable for us throughout all the accounts right now. Okay. Uh, last question, then I'm going to call this because we'll go forever. Are you optimizing a top funnel for conversion or video view? Uh, I do both. Um, so for clients that has a ton of historical data uh, or doesn't know, um, but really care about scale, uh, we try to, we are basically buying eyeballs at this point. So it's all, mm -hmm. uh, optimized for, optimized for video view because my, I know, like, I remember that I said, it's a wide, Facebook is a wide ocean. I'm using different size of nets and hooks to find the users. Uh, and that time I'm using purely um, video view. Um, and uh, and I let the my creative talks to the value proposition to the customer and eventually I can convert them. But if I am starting new and I'm tr still trying to understand product market fit, then I'm using conversion optimization uh, as a way to tell Facebook inform me what it thinks the right price or right, right user. Uh, so I do both. Okay. Well, um, I appreciate your time, man. I know you're no a busy guy, very successful. Um, so we really- Thanks guys. Um, I will make, um, I will see two follow-up things. Um, I will see if I can do a detailed video on, on the Daisy chain, uh, if anyone who is interested. Uh, the other thing that I think a couple of people ping me and ask me is that, you know, the access to the creative library, maybe like we can coordinate later. Yeah, we can coordinate after. I have a question for you anyways, so we can jump on. All so, right. Also, please be respectful of his time. I mean, I don't want hundreds of people DMing him. So <laughs> no, I don't. I, I I know like I get a lot of friends. And again, it's nothing against anyone. I just understand like I, you know, if I'm not in buying media, I'm not making money. So <laughs> that go, that is even true for me. Yeah. So as much as I like to help and learn, uh, just um, I don't add anyone unless I really know you guys as friends. So I know I got ton of friend requests. Just uh, I don't do that. Uh, but if you have any questions, just ask. Um, ask on the group. That's the best way for to get answers from me. Um, and and that's also like you know helps others, right? You others may have the same question, so I can answer one person, and others can uh, pick pick from there. All right, man. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks, right, everybody. No problem. Cheers, man. We Thank will get you. this up in the vault. Good luck. Yep. Bye.